The story is told of an elderly woman who was prepared to pull her high end, fully loaded with all the bells and whistles Cadillac, into a parking spot at a business that she was just about to patronize. When all of a sudden, a young teenage driver cuts her off and quickly zips into her parking space. As the young man jumps out of his car with a smirk on his face, he yells out to the senior citizen woman, Oh, to be young and fast. Well, the elderly lady didn't flinch as she began using her car as a battering ram, continuously smashing into the young man's smaller car. As she demolished the car, the teen boy stood by there watching it all happen, unable to stop the woman. When it was all said and done, the elderly woman pressed the button on her electric uh, do door to roll down the window and shouted, Oh, to be old and rich. <laughs> the truth of the matter is we all struggle in one degree or another with the issues that are identified in, in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 13. We struggle with dishonoring others, with being self-seeking, with being easily angered, and with keeping a record of wrongs that others have perpetrated against us. And experts now in mental health uh, tell us that we are living in America right now in the age of rage. Whether we experience that behind the wheel when we're driving, whether we're out shopping somewhere or in some public venue, or maybe we're at a sporting event, or even at home, rage in America right now is currently the rage. Rage is the rage. That's the MO. That's the mode of operandi. That's the mode of operation in America right now. Studies have currently revealed that the average American male loses his temper six times a week. And most often it's about circumstances and things more often than being even mad at people. Women, on the other hand, they're doing a little bit better. They lose their temper on average three times per week in America, and more often their anger is directed toward people and less often toward things or circumstances. And unfortunately, all the research shows that people most often express their anger in two very inappropriate ways. One of them is to blow up, and the other is to clam up. Now, sometimes people who blow up and just get their anger out will even say afterwards, oh, I just feel a lot better. I just had to get that off my chest. Well, they feel a lot better, but nobody else around them feels much better. You know, they don't, they don't feel too good uh, around them. So what, what ends up happening? That's the nuclear option when they blow their steam off like that. It's called the atomic bomb anger because it's over in seconds, but the collateral damage can last a lifetime. Now, for those who clam up, and they use the passive-aggressive approach, which people think, you know, they're being more spiritual and more godly because they're not speaking up. But boy, are they cooking inside and just boiling inside. Well, they're damaging themselves internally as they stew over what's happened, often keeping mental records of these wrongs that have been committed against them and regurgitating them for years and years and years. Anger, folks, is not sinful in and of itself. How many times do we read about God being angry with Israel in the Old Testament? Angry with them over their idolatry, their lack of faithfulness, their lack of devotion, their flat-out disobedience. Over and over, we witness God's anger toward Israel. We're also familiar with Jesus' righteous indignation at the temple 
where Jesus went into the temple courts, flipped over the moneylenders' tables, and it was pretty bold when he did that, and he let them know that you've turned my father's house of prayer into a den of thieves. Now in Mark chapter 3, we actually have the most direct statement in the Bible of Jesus experiencing this emotion of anger. Let me read it for you. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was, was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. When Jesus asked, then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He, took around, he looked around at them, in anger. Did you hear that? Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn heart said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus was upset with these religious leaders. He was angry at their adamant refusal to acknowledge the truth. But he did it and was angry without sinning. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we, want, we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. You know, the Apostle Paul is also a portrait of this godlike jealousy of God's name and God's honor. And Paul wrote over half, it's almost two-thirds of the New Testament. And there are places where he's writing where he's clearly upset. He's, he's really angry over the heresy and the immorality and the carnal and divisive behaviors that had cropped up in some of these New Testament churches. But what we see Paul not being angry about was the persecution that he suffered, the beatings that he took, and the jail time that he was made to serve, things that he called the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. So anger, which is a neutral emotion, a useful emotion, an important emotion, when under control and properly directed, can be very valuable. And although anger is not a sin in and of itself, it can very easily lead to sin. Ephesians 4, 26 says, In your anger, do not sin. Hear that? In your anger, do not sin. It doesn't say it's wrong to be angry about something. It says in that, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. So it's possible to experience anger and not sin. Even our text here for today in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says love is not easily angered. It doesn't say that love can never get angry about something. What it is saying, though, is a God-fearing person who's walking in step with the Holy Spirit, who's trying to live according to God's description here of love, agape love, loving people unconditionally, that kind of person, is, it's going to take a lot for that person to become angry. You know, in this sermon series this summer, we have learned that love is an attribute of God. And it's God's gift to us. We've also learned that it's the most excellent way. It's the important way to live our lives. And we have learned along the way that in Christ Jesus, we can love ourselves. 
And out of that, that aids us in the process of being able to love others. We've also learned that love is both an emotion and it's an action. And there's 15 verbs here that tell us about this kind of action that's to be done. That love is to be patient. Love is to be kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not proud. And in today's lesson, we're going to what many refer to as the headwaters of agape love. And when we encounter these initial springs of God's love, we see love as verse 5 describes. Love that does not dishonor others. In fact, it doesn't matter what somebody has done. It doesn't matter what they have not done. It seeks to honor them. And if for no other reason, they're a fellow human being who's been made in the image of God. Love also, it says, is not seeking, self-seeking. It's, it's not about what's best for the giver. The giver of love, what's in it for me? What, what do I get out of it? Selfishness and self-centeredness are not even part of the equation of agape love that's described here. And again, it says this love is not easily angered. And, and, and again, it doesn't mean that love doesn't get angry because anger can actually be an evidence of love. You know, uh, anger is appropriate uh, and it's a very appropriate response to evil. And anger is also very relevant when someone intentionally hurts one of our loved ones or family members or, or fellow Christians or even fellow human beings. In reality, apathy in life is incompatible with love because apathy does not care. Love cares. But again, too often, anger leads to sin. It, it, it leads to injury and evil and ill will and resentment and bitterness and a whole host of other sins. Do you know that there are millions and millions and millions of women who are beaten every year in America by their husbands, their you know, living boyfriends, and significant others because they are angry? Millions upon millions upon millions of children are physically abused every single day, or every single year, excuse me, in our country by angry parents. And that's only the ones that are reported. There could be much higher cases than we even know about. And half of the murders in this nation are committed each year by people in anger who know the victim whose life they are taking. So anger can either be good or it can be bad. Now listen to how the other translations of the Bible treat this verse. Today's Living Bible says love is not touchy. The New Living Translation and the English uh, Standard Version say love is not irritable. The Contemporary English Version, the CEV Version, says love is not quick-tempered. Uh, the New English Bible says love is not quick to take offense. And the message paraphrase of this says, love does not fly off the handle. In the book of James chapter 1 verse 19 we read, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And you know if you take and do a word search of the Bible, with these two words together, slow and anger, you will find that they are placed together ten times in the Bible. That we should be slow to become angry angry. So when we take a close look at our own anger, we will discover that we most often get angry about things, not about the evil in the world. We'll see things each day on the news that are evil. We'll get a pop-up on our phones about some terrible thing that happened in the world, and we may not get all lathered up about that. But what we tend to really get upset about is when someone does something to us 
personally. That's when we get lathered up. Not, oh, these tragedies that happen. That isn't what gets us really angry. It's when something is done to us personally. And this is what 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about. Things that disturb our way of life. Things that do not break our way. Things that we find offensive in others. And then we have this amazing human tendency to blame our anger on someone else. Well, it's your fault that I'm so angry. You know, if you didn't do such and such, I wouldn't be so irritated right now. Or that car in front of me is driving so slow and they, they, they don't even get going when the light is green. They'd quit playing around and screwing around with their phone and that's why I'm so angry. That's why I'm so upset. If you wouldn't have invaded my space, if you wouldn't have disturbed my sleep, if you would not have interrupted my lunchtime or interrupted my vacation or violated my rights, I wouldn't be so angry right now. What 1 Corinthians 13 teaches us is that people who are used to getting their way in life are people who are easily angered. You know, there's a helpful illustration here. I want you to imagine that you have $84,600 to your name. And one day, somebody steals $60 of that. Now, that bother us. It's like, how did that happen? How did somebody get access to our money? Why do, I don't get that. You know, we, we'd be bothered by it, but we probably wouldn't lose any sleep over it. And it wouldn't, we wouldn't let it ruin our lives. Okay, 60 bucks out of 86,400. Okay, I, I, I get it. Not too bad. But people have 86,400 seconds to live every single day. And someone will do something to us in a 60-second time span that will ruin the whole rest of the day, maybe the rest of the week and the month, and, and it will cause us to get angry. And sometimes people will hold on to that 60 seconds for years to come, even nursing the memory and that grudge that results from that. The Apostle Paul says here that agape love lets things that are not matters of the truth and not matters of morality Let's those things go. Let those things that are personality quirks and irritants and frustrations, let those things go. In fact, the same apostle in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, speaking to the exact same church, the church at Corinth, he tells them that the love of Christ is what compels us. This is what should motivate us in life. This is what should guide us in life, the love of Christ. So when it comes to proclaiming the good news about Jesus Christ, what should be our motivation? It should be the love of Christ that compels us. When it comes to living a godly life in Christ Jesus, what should drive us to do that? It should be the love of Christ that compels us. When it comes to serving your church and in your church and for your church, it, it should be coming from the love of Christ. That's what should compel us and drive us. And when it comes to loving one another and it comes to loving people out there in the world around us, it's the love of Christ that should compel us. But unfortunately, that isn't always what causes the, uh, that drives us. That's not always the cause that drives us in life. Often, it is our love for ourselves that drives us and even compels us to keep records of wrongs committed against us. Now, for the sake of illustration today, let's say that Pastor James and I are visiting together, and unbeknownst to him, he says something to me that offends me. And I keep a record of it. I even write it on a post-it note. He hurt my feelings. And then I slap it on Pastor James. 
So whenever I see Pastor James, I am remembered that he hurt my feelings. Now let's say as well that I invite Pastor James to a social get-together, and he's really so busy. He, he, he declines. He can't make it work. And then I take his inability to come as a personal rejection. So guess what? I write myself another post-it note. He rejected me. I slap it on Pastor James as well. Now, let's go as far in this illustration to say that Pastor James legitimately sins against me. So guess what? I write his sin down on that post-it note, and I even write how I feel about what he has done for me. And again, I slap that on Pastor James. And before long, I begin to interpret everything Pastor James says, everything Pastor James does through the distorted lens of my own post-it notes. Now, all of us here would agree that these post-it notes have absolutely nothing to do with love. So go ahead and ask yourself right now, how many of those post-it notes have you placed upon people in your life? These could be family members. This could be a spouse. This could be your parents. Could be your children. Could be oftentimes a co-worker or that stinking rotten neighbor down the road that drives you crazy. Okay? It could be a teammate or a classmate. I bet some of you have post-it notes like that slapped on people that go back decades. Records of wrongs that people have perpetrated against you. Now, in the business world, it is very important to keep accurate records, especially when things didn't go well in the past. We need those things for referencing in the future so that leaders can make wise business decisions. But when it comes to personal matters, when it comes to our personal life like this, it's not only unnecessary to keep records, it is actually a harmful thing to do. And it is true. A lot of people don't want to become bitter. And a lot of people even say they don't want to keep records, but they also do not know honestly how to stop this behavior. And once they try to stop, it's like the smoker who tries to stop. All the smoker can think about is having another cigarette. And people that are trying to get out of this lifestyle of, of, of getting easily angered and keeping records of wrongs and all that stuff, they, they want to stop that. All they can seem to think about is how people have wronged them. For many people, their lives just don't seem to make sense without keeping records of the wrongs perpetrated against them. Now, I'm going to ask you to be honest with yourself today. Are you looking to be treated perfectly before you believe what 1 Corinthians is teaching us here about love, that this is the way you should live, that this is the most excellent way to live? And are you looking to be treated that way, the way you feel you deserve to be treated, before you can fully place yourself into God's hands? You know, i got to tell you this. There is nothing glorious. There is nothing dreamy about God's definition of love here for us in 1 Corinthians 13. This is actual reality. This is life. And love needs to be patient because we're not patient people. Love needs to be kind because we do unkind things. Love does not envy because we're green with envy sometimes. Love is not proud. It does not boast. All those things. And verse 5 tells us here, love does not dishonor others. 
It's not in it for itself. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. And it keeps no record of wrongs. All of these things are required behaviors in a spirit-filled community of believers living in a fallen world, living in the age of rage. And by the way, we never have to worry about keeping records anyway of things that have been done to us. We don't have to do that because God is just. And you know who keeps track of what is done to us and the bad things that are done to us? God keeps track of all that. Listen to what Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21 have to say. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's orge, God's wrath. That means God's anger. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Today I have asked you to consider the ways that you have kept records of wrongs that others have done to you. Now I'm going to ask something else of you. I'm going to ask you to consider uh, a wrong that had been done to Brant Jean by a woman named Amber Geiger. Now, we have all lived through the horrible, tragic death of George Floyd at the hands of police officers in Minneapolis, Minnesota, 27 months ago. We've also had a front row seat because of the news media and social media to the riots and the destruction of property, numbering in the billions of dollars that occurred across our nation uh, following George Floyd's death. Well, two years ago, two years, excuse me, before George Floyd died, Amber Geiger was a police officer in Dallas, Texas. After a long shift of work, she returned to her apartment, or rather, what she thought was her apartment. She had gone to the wrong floor in her large apartment building, and when she opened the door to what she thought was her apartment, she found a black man inside. The man was Botham Jean. She thought he was a burglar, so she shot the accountant dead in his own apartment when he was sitting in his chair in his underwear eating ice cream. Botham Jean, as you're going to see in this video in a few moments, was the brother of Brant Jean. Amber Geiger not only did a horrible, senseless act in killing Botham Jean, but she also did wrong to his family, including his brother Brant, by taking his life from him. At Amber's sentencing for her crime, Brant Jean asked specifically to talk directly to Geiger. And here's the actual footage of what happened. I can speak for myself. I I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not gonna say I hope you rot and die 
just like my brother did, but I see I I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't gonna ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not gonna say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. Can you even imagine a world where we all forgave like Brant Jean? Can you imagine a world where we all forgave like Jesus? What you are imagining is a world that God desires. A world where there's no dishonoring others. A world where people are not self-seeking. Where people are not easily angered where people do not keep records. What you are imagining is a world of love and hope. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for the opportunity that you have graced us with this summer to look into your holy, sacred word and to see the definition, God, that you have given of yourself and of this gift that you are and have given to us of love. Thank you, God, for gracing us with that. And Lord, it's challenging because we live in that age of rage right now where everybody's upset about everything else. And yet, Lord, we've just seen how one young man, you know, Brant Jean, ex you know, ex exhibited and demonstrated this love of Christ in a powerful way being Jesus to this very person, Amber Geiger, who hurt him so, so deeply. Oh, I pray for your church to be like this, God, in America. It's what we so desperately need. And oh God, may it glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.